This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Danny Orbach about his excellent new book, The Plots Against Hitler. Uh, Danny, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, Danny, we always like to begin these interviews by having the authors tell us a little bit about their background. So if you would please. So I'm a, now an assistant professor at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. So I'm teaching in Israel. I, throughout my career, I studied in several places. I began in Tel Aviv University, then moved to Tokyo. My other field is a modern Japanese history. And from Tokyo, I moved to Harvard when I made my PhD on disobedience and rebellion in the Japanese army. And the project we are speaking about now was actually a project I began very, very early. In fact, the earliest version was a a research I began for high school, believe it or not. And it developed throughout my academic career and actually took almost uh, 15 years to publish publish in the final form. Oh, wow. Um, and, th- and this is your second book, correct? This was actually my first book. This was your first my book? My second book it was based on my dissertation. It's on rebellions in the Japanese army. So this is my first book. There is a raw version that I published in Hebrew in uh, 2009, uh, but this is my full research published in English in 2015. That is a bit later. Um, so... Uh, tell us, you, you, you've obviously been working on this project for a long time. Um, tell us about what about this topic, German uh, resistors, uh, was so fascinating to you. Why, why write this book? I think, first of all, I have to admit that I like good stories. <laughs> like many historians, uh, not everybody admits it. And I think this was a very interesting story. But it was, there is something more into it than just an interesting story. Because as we all know, the Second World War is full of very interesting stories. I got the idea to write about this subject when I read general books about the Second World War. And I saw that the interpretation of the German resistance, of the plots to kill Hitler, as presented to the general public, is very different from the facts as I saw them. So I saw a glaring gap between the way the story is usually being told and the raw facts as I understood them. So 
my notion was that it's not only a very good story, it's a story that is often poorly told. And that gave me an incentive to try to tell it again. Can, can you give the listeners some idea of the story that was being told that you're trying to address? Everybody, first of all, told the operational story. There was an underground in Germany that tried to kill Hitler from 1938 to 1944. German officers, most of them Wehrmacht officers, they tried to do it at least 12 times by all sorts of ways. This story was always told. But then many historians, especially popular historians, added something additional. The tendency of many of them, not all, many, was to say that the resistors were opportunistic German officers, anti-Semitic war criminals, who tried to jump from the boat, to escape the Nazi boat at the last moment because we understood the war was lost. And this narrative did not fit the facts that I saw in this popular book. And books, and then I thought I need to delve into the primary sources and reconstruct the picture of the complex motives of the resistance, which do not fit easily into simple preconceived pictures. So, in other words, to tell the story of the resistance in its human, psychological, and moral complexity. Um, you, I noticed in your bibliography, you, you went a great many places to, to accomplish this. You went to a bunch of archives. Um, there's a lot of languages represented here. Um, can you give us a flavor of, of some of the things that you found in the extensive research? I think multilingual research helped a lot here because the most scholars wrote about the resistance used the extent sources in English and German. I did it as well. But what I try to do, for example, is to use sources in Russian as well. And I'll give you one example. In the National Archive of the Russian Federation, called GARF, there is an interrogation protocol of a relatively unknown resistance fighter who gave very reliable information about plots and conspiracies which are almost unknown in the literature because the evidence are very scarce in the archives, unless you read this Russian testimony. And what this testimony, just like other things, gave me is an option to do something additional, to reconstruct the way the conspiracy really worked. How did they communicate with one another? How did they recruit new people? How were the networks built? So, in other words, there are so many fictional conspiracy stories nowadays. One of my goals was to show how a real conspiracy worked, and the Russian sources helped me a lot. I must add that now there are quantitative studies in German about the network structure of the resistance, but they were published after 2015, so I couldn't take advantage of these studies, and in my research on the networks, these additional sources in Russian were a great help. Um, let's let's start with the beginning of your book, um, particularly your first chapter. Uh, can you set the stage for our listeners? Um, explain to them why resistance 
uh, in the Third Reich was was mainly confined to the army. I know there are some lone wolves, and and we'll talk about those. But 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 laid out the stage. What is what what's going on in thirty three thirty four? Um, that's sort of laying the groundwork for later resistance. What's going on in 1933, I would say to 1935, is that the Nazi police state destroys most forms of opposition. Almost all forms of open opposition, there are a series of laws legislated in 1933, there is police action, and one must stress, most Germans at the time supported the regime, and the support of the regime increased with time did not decrease. Combined with very strong police action by the Gestapo, that was enough to crush organized opposition. And this is the most important point here. Opposition in the Third Reich, effective opposition, because there was opposition from all sorts of places, effective opposition, opposition that endangered the regime, could come only from people who were not natural enemies of the Nazi regime. And I must elaborate on this for a while. The communists, the social democrats, all of these people were the natural enemies of the Nazi regime. And that meant that the Gestapo had an eye on them from early on. And when you face the full power of a modern police state and the population does not support you, you cannot organize effective opposition. That was one of my most important findings. That's, by the way, the difference between the German resistance and the Polish resistance, for example. The Polish resistance was resistance against an occupier, which enjoyed support from the vast majority of the population. That was not the case in the German resistance. Resisting your own government is way more difficult because you don't enjoy popular support. Therefore, the people who could resist Hitler were only people that the Nazi regime did not expect resistance from them. And this came from the conservative right, and it came from the army, and I should caution, from tiny fragments of the conservative right and from the army, because most right-wing politicians and most army officers were, of course, loyal to the regime. In other words, Resistance that surprised the Gestapo and was therefore less supervised or less watched. And give give us a, an indication of um, any sort of pivotal events that that made resistance from known enemies uh, impossible, because uh, you detail this early on in your book. In fact, it were a, it was a, it was a series of scandals that took place in 1938. In 1938, uh, Hitler makes a reshuffle in uh, the leadership more generally, also in the foreign ministry, but uh, notably also in the army. Uh, the defense, uh, the war minister is being sacked uh, for a sex scandal. Uh, then the uh, commander-in-chief of the hair of the land army is being sacked as well, is being framed as a homosexual. This was probably not an intentional plot uh, by Hitler. It had a more complicated dynamics. But the most important thing was that certain officers in the army wanted to protect their sect commander. They were not anti-Nazis at the time, but they came together in order to protect the commander of the land army, Werner von Fritsch, 
from charges of homosexuality. The interesting dynamics that happened is that a handful of true anti-Nazis in the army, most important of them, Colonel Hans Oster from the Abwehr, for military intelligence, he used this initiative to protect Fritsch, which in the beginning was very limited in order to build the nucleus of more organized resistance. So in a way, Oster piggybacked on the attempt to protect Fritsch, and that, that's the way the German resistance in the army was initially formed. Then it's crystallized among officers who resisted uh, the war, or the warmongering policy of the Nazi regime in the Sudeten crisis of 1938. Um, we'll, we'll get back to the army, because we'll, we'll be spending the vast majority of our time talking about uh, the army and how the networks worked and uh, who, who joined and how they were recruited. Uh, but we, let's, let's shift a little bit and talk about the lone wolves um, first. Um, you, you make the point in the book Ironically, the, these these sort of plots are the closest to being successful, um, and I, I imagine it has to do with something you mentioned earlier that they sort of came to the surprise of the Gestapo and the authorities. Um, can you give us some examples of famous lone wolves? Um, maybe a couple that people may have heard of. Um, maybe a couple that people may not have heard of. Um, and and then I'll ask you some follow ups. But we'll start with that. The lone wolf whom I studied, and that's the one I want to talk about because about others I know a little bit less, is a Georg Elzer. Georg Elzer was a carpenter, actually was a manual worker who did many things. He was also a watchmaker who resisted the war in 1939. He was not a communist, but he was, I would say, a leftist with a very strong class conscience as a member of the working class. He thought the working class will pay the price of the war. He wanted to stop the war. And as he was a very talented watchmaker, he actually was able to build all by himself a highly sophisticated bomb. So sophisticated that after he was arrested, Actually, the Gestapo was very eager to learn his techniques. And uh, he almost killed Hitler. He installed a bomb in the beer hall where Hitler spoke, and uh, the bomb exploded almost on time, just Hitler left the beer hall earlier. The point I make in the book is that there is an inverse proportion between the security of a plot and your ability to control it and its effectiveness. If you want an effective network of conspiracy, you need to build a very large network, but then it's less secure and it's harder to control. What happens with lone plotters, with lone wolves, is that their security and control is maximum because it's one person. And if he does not speak, then nobody will know about the conspiracy. The Gestapo has very little chance uh, to know about it. The problem is that when you don't have a large network, when you don't have a network at all, you are very dependent on luck because you don't have intelligence on the target. Elzer virtually had to guess whether Hitler will speak at the ceremony or not, and you can never try again. Elzer had a lot of luck. 
he was almost able to kill Hitler. But when his luck ran out, when things went not according to plan, he could not try again. So what I'm trying to say, being a lone wolf has advantages, but also has strong disadvantages. In conspiracy, it's always a trade-off. Um, and I know this is definitely the most famous example of a, of a lone wolf. Um, do you have any indication of, of how many lone wolf plots there were? Just, I mean, not certainly not an exact number, but um, sort of a ballpark figure. How, did, did In your research, did you uncover uh, lots of these kinds of plots that went nowhere or no, or just this is sort of more uh, isolated incident? There are several. Uh, the other famous plot was uh, hatched by a theology student, actually, Swiss theology student. Um, I think Roger Moorhouse, in his famous book, on he tried to enumerate or to analyze all the plots to kill Hitler, mentioned some other plots, uh, some by lone wolves, other by British agents who were kind of rogue agents, were, did what they wanted. But uh, I think the one which was really serious was Elzer's plot. Mm. And of course, there are many plots which are rumored. But in the Third Reich, there are so many rumors that you really need solid evidence in order to decide that it was actually a plot. Because if you read the Gestapo reports, and you believe every rumor that the Gestapo is reproducing about a kind of a failed conspiracy to kill Hitler, a conspiracy which failed in the planning, then you'll have several dozens of attempts. But uh, my uh, belief is that most of them are fictional. Fictional. Just rumors in Nazi Germany. Just rumors, maybe neighbors, you know, reporting neighbors, things like that. I'll give you one example. Hmm. In a 19, a beginning of 1944, end of 1943, beginning of 1944, there was an attempt of an officer from the German resistance, of course this was not a lone wolf plot, to kill Hitler with a pistol in a meeting. Actually, this officer was junior, his name was Breitenbuch, was not allowed to get into the meeting. And the reason he was not allowed to get into the meeting is that there were heightened security procedures at the time. Just security was tightened. One of the reasons that security was tightened is that the Gestapo spread rumors at the time that an Austrian officer with Jewish connections is planning to assassinate a fear. This had nothing to do with the actual plot. The rumors were completely false but there were enough to tighten security. And a lot of rumors were going around. Can, can you give our listeners just a little bit of a flavor of how tight security normally was around Hitler? Hitler's security, first of all, was very tight in the physical sense. He was always protected. He was always surrounded by guards. Of course, he had uh, some, especially during the war, he wore some protective uh, equipment, uh, he, when he was in the famous wolf's lair, uh, after Operation Barbarossa uh, until 44, uh, then he was also surrounded by several belts of security, guards, dogs, minefields. It was very, very difficult to get in, almost impossible if you didn't have the right permissions. Of course, Klaus von Stauffenberg, as we know, the assassin, had this rare permission to participate uh, in meetings with Hitler. But I would say that Hitler's real security 
was not the guards and was not the minefields and was not the gates and was not the dogs and not the fortifications. It was his habits of changing his plans all the time. Think about it like that. There are two main options to kill a dictator. One option is to shoot him when you see him. Actually, many later historians blame the German resistance why they didn't take a gun and shoot this guy. Some even said because they didn't do it, they probably didn't want to succeed. But that's not true. As Hitler was so protected, shooting him was very dangerous. Virtually, at the best of luck, you had only one shot, and then the guards will shoot and neutralize you. And everything depends on one shot, shot in great psychological pressure. And if you are caught, of course, you can compromise the entire conspiracy. That's the reason the conspirators usually, with one exception, two exceptions, ruled out this option of shooting. Second option, which the conspirators uh, chose, was to use a bomb or a suicide bomber. But then Hitler's habit to change plans works against such plans because a bomb plot should be meticulously planned and should be meticulously timed to a certain time when Hitler is there and somebody with permission may uh, install a bomb or blow himself up on Hitler. But it's enough to change your plans, to change your schedule all the time in order to foil such plans. And there was a very famous example, of course, in a spring in 1943, one of the conspirators, a, a Colonel Rudolf Freiherr von Gerstorf, tried to blow himself up on Hitler during a museum exhibition. He was Hitler's guide in an exhibition of captured uh, Soviet war banners. And Hitler, instead of uh, listening to the explanation, just went out of the museum immediately. And it took the bomb 10 minutes to detonate. So the assassin had to get rid of the bomb. I would say security, changing your habits, is the most, the strongest form of security that Hitler had, and it was very effective. Later dictators, such as Saddam Hussein, actually uh, made this method even better and more sophisticated. Um, okay, so let's let's um, turn now to your chronology. Um, you, you basically focus on the period between 1938 and 1944. Can you uh, just orient us as to why you chose those? I think the 44 is obvious, but why you started really in 38? My goal in this book was not to tell the story of all opposition to Hitler in the Third Reich. I don't think that one book can do it, though some people try to do it. My goal was to tell the story of the underground that perpetrated the attempt in 20 July 1944. And this specific underground began in 1938. Uh, we spoke before about the Fritz scandal and the war scare of 1938-1939. This group crystallized at the time. It was somewhat large, but still small. In 1938, of course, it grew much smaller after Hitler's victories in the beginning of the war, grew a bit larger in 42-43, and again become relatively large, actually the largest that it was in 1944. But the leaders, the political leaders especially, were the same. And I saw this organization organizational continuity from 1938 to 1944. That's why I chose this chronology. 
how did this network function? How did they meet? Um, how did they organize themselves? And how did they recruit? Um, and, and, and what were the, just the general characteristics of the people who led the movement? And I'll, I'll ask some other follow-ups as well. Actually, the people who led the movements were the diehards, were the people who resisted Hitler continuously from 1938 to 1944. These were Colonel Hans Oster for military intelligence, whom we mentioned. This was General Ludwig Beck, the overall leader of the movement, who resigned because he resisted Hitler's war plan, and Dr. Karl Friedrich Gödeler, the Oberbürgmeister of Leipzig, who resigned because of his resistance to the persecution of the Jews and to Nazi policies in general. The people who joined along the way joined from many other motives, but I would say that the resistance to Hitler's war crimes and the patriotic imperative to save Germany were usually the most important one. We can speak about it later. But for your other question, you asked about the communication methods. And here, I think it's very important to differentiate between three different periods under three different military leaders. I said before that the political leaders were the same people throughout the period. The military leaders, however, changed. Under the first military leader, Colonel Hans Oster, the German resistance was still a small group of friends. So everybody knew everybody, people recruited people they knew, it was all very tight, therefore it was easiest to meet and communicate and recruit because the people were really densely tied to one another. Think of a group of friends which just mutates into a resistance group. After a 1943, Oster at the time it was caught trying to save Jews, and was a sect, he was put under house arrest, and the military leadership changed. The second military leader, General Henning, Colonel, later General Henning von Tresco, led a very different mode of conspiracy, very different mode of operation. Under Tresco, it was a structure I call connected cliques. Think that the Nazi empire at the time really expanded. It was not only in Germany, Austria, the Sudetenland. Now it was already in parts of European Russia and all over Western Europe. And Tresco's organization operates as a collection of cliques which are loosely connected to one another through people who always go back and forth. I call them in the book brokers and connectors. And the groups have to coordinate. The group in Russia has to assassinate Hitler. The group in Berlin and the group in France have to assist in the military revolt. This was very effective mode of communication because groups specialized. One in assassinations, one in coup planning, but coordination was very difficult. Everything depended on the brokers of the connectors, which were under immense pressure. The groups always fought and struggled with one another. There was a lot of internal politics. And 
security-wise, it was very dangerous because it was enough that the regime will put a hand on one of the brokers and the connectors, and the entire network would have been unraveled, and it almost happened several times in 1943. The last mode of communication was in 44 under the more famous Klaus von Stauffenberg. And that's the mode of communication I call a wheel conspiracy. This is actually a police terminology. Wheel conspiracy is a conspiracy which is centered on an individual, Stauffenberg in this case, and his closest advisors, who hold all the holds all the threads of the conspiracy in his hands. And this leadership is very charismatic. Stauffenberg is trying to enlarge and control the organization through his charisma in a very, very centralized way. And recruitment is done like that. You know, somebody is going to the front looking for anti-Nazi officers. In one famous case, it's an officer who witnessed a massacre of Jews in Dubno, Ukraine. Somebody spots him. He is uh, being led to meet Stauffenberg. Stauffenberg gives him a talk. He's very charismatic. I would compare his charisma to Hitler's charisma almost, really hypnotizing. And by this charismatic leadership, he is enlarging the network continuously with his feelers, which go around the fronts and looking for volunteers. And in the book, I show the big power, the great power of his mode and also the great weaknesses, because when the center fails, like in 20th July 1944, the conspiracy will unravel. So again, in conspiracies, everything is a trade-off. All of the three modes I described have advantages and disadvantages. And it was always a trade of trading one for the other. Um, you mentioned um, that particularly in the second, um, the second uh, unit um, that they almost unraveled because it you know, got so big and, the, and the, the regime could get a hold of these connectors and brokers. Um, is there any one instance, maybe one example where it was real, real close and um, – Sort of worth noting? Yeah, definitely. He actually, in 1943, just spring 1943, just when a General von Tresco's attempt to kill Hitler failed, Fritz Dietloff von der Schulenburg was arrested. Hermann Kaiser, another connector, was close to, to be discovered. When these connectors were arrested or almost arrested, you know, it was could be a matter of hours before uh, the military police and then the Gestapo will unravel the entire conspiracy. And it was very close. People were arrested and, you know, they were just released for lack of evidence, for lack of interest. But a more attentive Gestapo officer or a more attentive officer of the military police could have really destroyed the entire conspiracy already in 1943. It's a lot of dangers, many dangers, and a lot of chance and luck. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Was this an issue uh, 
Hitler, potential Hitler assassination plots. Was this a primary concern of the Gestapo? Did they, they spend a lot of their man hours on finding and foiling these plots or did they just respond to them as they arose or through rumors, as you mentioned earlier? There are several issues here. There were a lot of conspiracy theories after the war on the Gestapo's failure to destroy the plot on time. Some people even said that Himmler actually wanted Hitler killed to take over power himself. I do not believe in these theories. I think they are not really founded in the evidence. But, you know, people usually cannot cannot understand or cannot accept that people may fail and sometimes fail in a very foolish way. So there had to be something sinister behind it. I think that the Gestapo did not discover the plot on time for several reasons, which are all very interesting. First of all, the Nazi regime looked down on the right. The left, the communists, the socialists were the most dangerous enemy. So the eye of the regime, it has one, the the right eye was half blind, at least while the left eye was very attentive. Second thing, and actually the Gestapo officials write it very explicitly in their uh, interrogation reports of the conspirators after 20th of July 1944, the German army was tied in very dense networks of loyalty, especially the officer corps. And the internal culture dictated norms of behavior. And one of the norms was that you don't inform on your military comrades to outsiders. Doesn't mean that people did not inform. People did inform in the army. But there was less chance that it would happen. There are several cases where the conspirators made a mistake and tried to win over officers who were Nazi or supporters of Hitler. And these officers angrily rejected the overture but didn't inform, because it was considered shameful. You don't do such things. And for that reason, conspiracy was possible in the German army, but it was not possible, in my opinion, in the Soviet army, for example. Because the Soviet army had much stronger central control by the party and didn't have this culture of internal cohesion that the Wehrmacht had. So this is a very important a precondition for successful a conspiracy. Last but not least, while the civilian conspirators were very uncareful, and they were actually followed by the Gestapo all the time, the military conspirators kept compartmentalization. They kind of You know, there were compartments. People usually did not speak when they didn't have to. Uh, Stauffenberg and Tresco both kept secrecy in the center. So while the Gestapo knew very well about the civilian conspirators, their knowledge on the military conspirators was lacking. And that's another failure of the Gestapo. I guess that had the Gestapo, you know, if the Gestapo uh, invested the same effort in investigating the right and the army as they did the left, they may have found Stauffenberg on time, but that was always a second priority until July 20th, 1944. 
Um, you've, you've talked a little bit about recruitment that, uh, you know, Stauffenberg would approach an officer and, and win him over with his charisma. Was there any um, famous examples of people seeking out the conspirators to join them? Or was this something that the, the conspirators themselves would have been very leery of because they weren't sure about this person's true motives? Actually, we have many such instances in the literature. Our knowledge of them is not always perfect. I think maybe the most famous and uh, the story which is best to tell is the story of Axel von den Busche, which I actually mentioned in brief beforehand. Axel von den Busche was an officer which had no strong political views. In uh, 1943, he witnessed a massacre of Jews in Dubno, Ukraine. And one of the victims actually pleaded for help and he did nothing. And he was shocked and ashamed in the beginning. He thought that he just should die at the front in order to solve his dilemma. But then he was sought by uh, the agents, the feelers of the conspiracy. Uh, it's unclear whether he reached out or they reached out. The sources are a bit ambiguous. In any case, he found Fritz von der Schulenburg, who was Stauffenberg's feeder at the time, and he uh, volunteered to assassinate Hitler in order to atone for his failure in the Dubno incident. So often there was some very strong motive which made you a potential recruit, then you were spotted by a feeler of the resistance who tried to kind of fill the way, see if there is potential. And if there was, especially in the last round, in the last two stages of the conspiracy, he brought you for to a personal meeting with either Tresco or Stauffenberg or another one of the leaders. Communication was usually made with code names not with real names. And that's how people were recruited. I would like to add that very often family and friendship ties were very important here. It's not a chance that very many conspirators came from specific regiments, for example. For example, in these regiments, you had ties of friendship, ties of family, ties of marriage, and people usually try to recruit through these ties. If your father was in the conspiracy, if your uncle was in the conspiracy, if your brother-in-law was in the conspiracy, then it was easier to recruit. In the book, I call it uh, the law of revolutionary mutation. This builds on social network theory when there is a legitimate legal tie, legal social tie between two people. There are feelings of trust. It's much easier to mutate this tie into an illegal conspiratorial tie. And that's how conspiracy, conspiracy networks are usually being built and not only in Germany. What's unique in Germany is the density of these ties because the German elites, the German nobility had very, very strong mutual ties of family, friendship, military service, which made this process of military mutation easier. And yet, I really have to emphasize it. 
the mutation happened only in very tiny parts of the networks of German officer corps, German nobility. Most people were loyal to Hitler throughout. So this is a small phenomenon, but it still happened. Um, you mentioned this the, the particular individual, the story. He was horrified by the massacre of, of these Jews. Um, talk a little bit about uh, the conspirators' views on on Jews and Nazi policy towards Jews um, more generally. What, what were their general, I know it's impossible to say that, you know, pinpoint each one's very specific, um, you know, feelings on the matter, but just generally, um, how did they view Nazi, this, this pol- policy of extermination? Generally, the officers, the conspirators, both civilian and military, uh, were very much opposed to the Holocaust, to the mass, to the mass massacres to the violence against Jews, uh, very often also to the Kristallnacht in 1938. Uh, Of course, there are exceptions to that as well, because unfortunately there were conspirators like SS General Artur Nebe, who actually took part in the Holocaust. But largely speaking, the conspirators were horrified by mass massacres. About... The attitude to the Jews more generally, there were strong disagreements. Some believed that anti-Semitism was wrong to begin with and all racial legislation has to be abolished. Others believed that some sort of legal, non-violent discrimination was either legitimate or as to persist in some way. But uh, the majority of, I would say, draft draft constitutions and uh, proposals for a new government that the conspirators made usually included a abolishment of most of all anti-Jewish laws. Okay. Um, Doesn't mean that some didn't have feelings against Jews or prejudices against Jews. Many had. Mm, yeah. Uh, no, thank you for uh, making that clear. I think something that you, you do a, a nice job of in the book explaining. Um, and I think it's important for the listeners to understand this as well. Um, let's um, move closer to the July 20th plot. Um, but let's begin by talking. You've mentioned Stauffenberg uh, a couple of times. Um, but can you give the listeners a little bit of background on who he is? Um, where he comes from, um, sort of, you know, what strata of society does he belong to? Um, and I'll let you go. <laughs> Stauffenberg uh, is a, a nobleman. He comes from the traditional aristocracy of uh, southern Germany. Usually in some post-war accounts, uh, people speak about Stauffenberg and the Prussian spirit, but he was actually never a Prussian. Uh, he uh, was usually in the area, grew up in the area of either Bavaria or Schweben. Uh, and in his uh, days as a young man in the 1920s, he was very influenced by the circle around the poet Stefan George. He was very romantic. He believed in sort of manifest destiny of himself as an aristocrat to do great things. It was not clear, of course, what in the 1920s, but he was very ambitious. He wanted to be successful. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to do great things for the German fatherland. And 
In the 1930s, he was, I would say, a lukewarm supporter of uh, the Nazi of the Nazi regime. He was never an enthusiastic Nazi, but more or less, he supported Hitler at least part of the time, especially due after the victories in uh, 1939 and 1940. Then you can see that he starts to change already in 1941. In 1941, uh, early 1942, he still rules out conspiracy, but he turns internally more and more against the regime. Then he says, after we win the war, it will be the right time to get rid of the brown disease. Then he has another sea. There is another sea change, and that happens in 1942. And it's very important to emphasize that it happened in 1942, because in 1942, Stauffenberg believed that the war is still winnable. So at the time, he did not believe that the war was lost, and yet he tells his friends time and again, they are shooting Jews, it cannot continue like that. In summer 1942, he tells his friend Joachim Kuhn, we actually have Soviet documents about it, uh, that the treatment of the Jews, the lack of political guidance uh, to the local populations, the treatment of the local populations in the occupied territories more generally prove that Hitler lied to us when he said that he hopes to initiate a new order in Europe, and therefore this war is a monstrous. And then he started to speak about shooting Hitler, it was a long time, though, until he was actually recruited by the conspirators. That was only after it was transferred to Africa and wounded in uh, 1943. Uh, okay, um, so let, let's talk about the, the July 20th plot. I, I think a lot of people who are listening are, are, are familiar with what it is. Um, but give us um, sort of a breakdown of how it is organized, um, Obviously, we know their objective is to kill Hitler, um, but give us the anatomy of the plot, um, the, the big points. The idea of the July plot was not only to kill Hitler. The idea was to kill Hitler and then take power in Germany. The plan was as follows. Stauffenberg would kill Hitler in Wolf's Lair with the bomb. Then he will call the conspirators in Berlin and tell them that Hitler is killed. General Felgebel was an agent of the conspirators in the communication center of Wolf's Lair. He should cut the communications, cut Hitler's aids from the world. Then Stauffenberg will fly to Berlin, lead the coup d'etat, send orders to units throughout the Nazi empire, to arrest all Nazi officials, free or occupy uh, the concentration and extermination camps, and uh, take over Germany. Then, the, in the beginning, the conspirators will lie. They will tell the officers that somebody killed Hitler, or the SS killed Hitler, or some traitors killed Hitler, and therefore the army has to take control over important facilities throughout Germany. That was the essence of the Valkyrie plan was the plan of the conspirators. Originally, it was a plan to cope with an uprising of slave workers in Germany. 
because if slave workers in Germany will have to stage an uprising, then of course the army have to safeguard the important facilities. Why did the plot not succeed? The plot didn't succeed, first of all, because Hitler didn't die. And Hitler <laughs> didn't die because uh, somebody uh, moved the bomb to the other side of the table. But more importantly, or as importantly, the plot failed because too much was dependent on Stauffenberg personal. And this is a, a, really a point which I think is worth emphasizing. Stauffenberg uh, made a mistake when he didn't bring two bombs into the briefing room. That was done under immense mental pressure. Again, too much was dependent on him. And even worse, he had to fly to Berlin and stage the uprising. People actually were not ready to act before he came. So it took the, the conspirators lost precious hours while Stauffenberg was flying uh, from Wolfsburg to Berlin. But final point, is that when the generals throughout the Nazi empire discovered that Hitler is alive, they virtually had to choose. I know a scholar once said that the 20th of July 1944 were the last elections in Nazi Germany. The electorate was the generals, and they had to choose between the conspirators and Hitler. And when they discovered that Hitler is alive, almost all of them voted Adolf. Hmm. And in a way, that was the main reason that the conspiracy failed. Hmm. Um, talk to, I mean, obviously it failed, um, and Stauffenberg and other conspirators were executed. Um, well, what is the aftermath of this plot? What was the broader, broader aftermath, aside from executions? The broader aftermath was that there was virtually no chance for another organized uprising in Nazi Germany. But I think deeper than that, uh, the failure of the plot negated all possibility of a new Dorstos uh, legend, that is a stabbing in the back legend. That means that people will say, we lost the war not because of Hitler or the Nazi regime or the unrealistic plans of the Nazi elite more generally, but because of his vicious traitors who stabbed the army and the nation in the back. The conspirators were actually really afraid of such an outcome. In Ironically, the failure of the plot made uh, this possibility null and void. So because Hitler himself led Germany to unconditional surrender after his suicide and complete destruction, uh, he led Germany to virtually defeat, which was unquestionable, and there was nobody else to blame, maybe it affected in a way the democratic transformation of Germany after 1945. And it's a, and prevented the Nazi resurgence. And this is a dilemma. I don't intend to say, like some people said after the war, that it's good that the plot failed because it prevented a stab in the back legend. Really want to emphasize that the number of people killed from July 1944 to the end of the war is immense. 
And the success, the success of the plot, certainly in 1943, but also in 1944, could really save many, many people. Really, more than a million, certainly. So I just want to say that everything in history is a trade-off. And that was the trade-off of July 20th, 1944. Because the plot failed, many more people died needlessly. But there was no stab-in-the-back legend, which was good for German democracy on the long run. How is the July 20th plot remembered in Germany um, sort of throughout the decades? And, you know, they certainly think about it very differently today than they did in, in the 1950s. Uh, so you give us some, some flavor of that. In the 1950s, many Germans still saw the uh, 20th of July conspirators as traitors, especially the army veterans, uh, most of the army veterans. Uh, there was a widespread belief, even in the uh, German secret service at the time, at Giel and all, that the veterans of the resistance, even the military and conservative resistance, were actually communist agents in disguise, absurd as it sounds now. Uh, things start to change only in 1954 when Bundespräsident Theodor Heuss gives a speech and is praising the conservative resistance. And then for a while, gradually, the conservative resistance becomes, I would say, become, members of the conservative, uh, conservative resistance become heroes for the establishment and the conservative center in Germany. It happens very gradually in the 1950s, 1960s. I say the conservative resistance because the socialist resistance or the communist resistance was more controversial. The dynamics is usually that people in Germany tend to sympathize with resistance fighters of their own political stripe. And what happens in the 1960s, after this neo-Nazi or kind of Wehrmacht veteran voice that say that the resistance members are traitors, these voices die out. Gradually, the resistance starts to be attacked from uh, different quarters. And this is the left. Uh, in the 1960s, Germany is undergoing the same waves of student demonstrations, of progressive resurgence like many other countries in the West. And now the members of the German resistance are being attacked from the other direction. They are rightists, they are reactionaries, they are anti-democrats, they are not progressive. Uh, scholars who kind of start right at the time emphasize uh, the anti-democratic sides of the resistance, the anti-Semitic sides of the resistance. And uh, the zeal to demonize the resistance was so strong at the time that some scholars, I would say gently, relied on sources that never existed. So the even scholarship was intensely political at the time. Today, I would say the resistance is still controversial. Of course, it, ha it is hated by the neo-Nazi right, but the neo-Nazi right in Germany is still a marginal. Uh, people from the far left still see the members of the resistance as a, a reactionary anti-Semites and war criminals, opportunists. And just like in 54, the resistance is still supported by the center, the government, the conservative establishment, and the people and the journalists 
and makers of public opinion who are associated with the establishment center or the conservative center. I would add one more thing. You asked about Germany. I have to say that now there is a new trend to attack the German resistance actually in Poland. In Poland, there is a wave of anti-German feelings at the moment, and certain Polish journalists try to revive the thesis of leftist scholars in Germany from the 1960s in order to portray the conspirators as criminals as part of the current struggle between uh, Poland and Germany or politicians in Poland and Germany. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, as a, We're coming up on, on about an hour. So as, as a way to close discussion of, of your book, um, what are one or two major things you would like the listeners of this interview and the readers of your book um, to take away from it? I would emphasize two points. First of all, a very strong point I make in my book is that military officers are not, are not necessarily good conspirators. Conspiracy is not a military operation. It operates by different rules. For example, a speed is much more important than planning and secrecy. And I explain many of the failures of the resistance in their insistence to think like officers and not like revolutionaries or conspirators. And as I show, they always try to shift their mode of conspiracy, their mode of organization, but it was always a trade-off. They improve the conspiracy from a certain aspect, and then it suffers uh, from a different aspect. I would also say, as I write in my conclusion, that it is wrong to demonize the conspirators as opportunistic criminals, as some did, but it is equally wrong to lionize them as spotless heroes. Nobody who served in the Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front at the time, and I speak about it at length in the book, could be free of responsibility for war crimes. The system was criminal. The war was criminal. And the conspirators, even if they hated it, were implicated especially when they wanted to carry out their military duty to the best of their ability and they wanted. They were caught up in a criminal system while trying to rebel against this criminal system. And what I'm saying is that in the real world, heroes, and I'm not ashamed to use the term, are not knights in a shining armor. They are knights in a tarnished armor. People who do such things do it with limitations, do it with human failings. And I think that's what makes them important. Because if heroes are people which are angels, perfect, spotless, then we can learn nothing because we are humans. I think that the real historical lesson is how you rise up from such a criminal system, from such a hopeless situation, and still do the best you can. And with all of the human failings of the conspirators, I think that this moral ambiguity makes their story much more interesting. And I also think it's wrong to debate whether their motives were moral, universalistic, that is, or patriotic. They were both. For these people, it was a moral imperative to save Germany. At the same time, Saving the victims of the Nazi regime, like Jews, 
was seen as a patriotic duty towards Germany. So I'm also trying to show how in the conspiracy, morality, universal morality and patriotism were so intertwined that you cannot really differentiate or put a line between the two. Uh, and finally, just uh, one final sentence, I think the difficulties and the moral ambiguity of the resistance shows, as historian Peter Hoffman said, that the best time to resist regimes such as Nazi Germany is before they come to power, not after. <laughs> um, well said. Um, yeah, you know, I want to I tell all the listeners uh, that this is a, an excellent book and they should definitely pick it up and, and read it. Um, but Danny, before I, I let you go, um, and now that this project is done, the book is on the shelves, um, what are you working on now? Now I'm working on a, a book called Fugitives. It's a history of Nazi spies in the Cold War. I'm tracing veterans of the Nazi espionage and security apparatus, especially the SS, who served as spies in the Cold Wars, in the Cold War for East Germany, for West Germany, for the KGB, for the Arabs, for Israel. I focus a lot on the Middle East. And the way these people, who many of them were double agents or intelligence freelancers, as Nazis, became an intermediary between East and West in the secret struggles of the Cold War, kind of a middle ground for which information flowed in distorted ways between the Soviets and the Western powers. And I'm very interested in the ways double agents work and their influence and the ways in which groups of people, these former Nazis, were not so important in and of themselves, uh, provoke states into unproportional reactions which actually have a strong effect on history. Well, it, it sounds fa fascinating. I, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but when you're done and <laughs> it comes out, um, I would love to have you back on the show to talk about it. Thank you. Um, um, I want to thank Danny one more time for agreeing to be on the show. Again, the book is called The Plots Against Hitler by Dr. Danny Orbach. Um, I would encourage all our listeners to go out and get it and read it. Um, and I want to thank you all for listening today. And I want to thank Danny again for being on the show. Um, and we will see you all next time. 